Hello, everyone. This is Dr. David Perlmutter, and today we will be mapping uric acid on the 15-minute matrix. Welcome to the 15-Minute Matrix. I'm Andrea Nakayama, functional medicine nutritionist and your host. This is the podcast that brings you bite-sized insights and lessons on the clinical relevance of the functional nutrition matrix, the most important tool in functional medicine and functional nutrition. The matrix is so important not only because it invites us to stop and assess, but also because it reminds us of three very important factors in our care, our recommendations, and our outcomes. Everything is connected, we are all unique, and all things matter. Be sure to head over to this episode's show notes at 15minutematrix.com if you'd like to see today's topic mapped on a downloadable matrix to remind you of these critical aspects of care. Today on the 15-Minute Matrix, I'm excited to be speaking with Dr. David Perlmutter. Dr. David Perlmutter is a board-certified neurologist and five-time New York Times bestselling author. He serves on the board of directors and is a fellow of the American College of Nutrition. He is author of Grain Brain, among others, and his upcoming book, Drop Acid, is out on February 15th. The book looks at uric acid as the key to losing weight, controlling blood sugar, and achieving health and longevity, and exposes the deadly truth about uric acid and teaches invaluable strategies to manage its levels. Dr. Perlmutter serves as a member of the editorial board for the Journal of Alzheimer's Disease and has published extensively in peer-reviewed scientific journals, including Archives of Neurology, Neurosurgery, and the Journal of Applied Nutrition. In addition, he is a frequent lecturer at symposia sponsored by institutions such as the World Bank and IMF, Columbia University, Scripps Institute, New York University, and Harvard University, and serves as an associate professor at the University of Miami Miller School of Medicine. Dr. Perlmutter, I am a huge fan of your work, as many in our shared communities are, and I am so pleased to welcome you to the 15-Minute Matrix. I'm delighted to be with you today. Dr. Perlmutter, I understand that your latest body of work is helping us to look at the relationship between elevated uric acid and some of our most aggressive metabolic problems, including diabetes, insulin resistance, hypertension, and dyslipidemia. Can you start us out with an explanation of what uric acid is in the body? I can, and I think uh, most of the listeners will certainly be familiar with uric acid. It's what we've been told to measure in dealing with individuals with gout or even to help determine risk for gout. But the new research indicates that this is not your grandfather's uric acid anymore, that this is a far more important metabolic player than we ever realized. And that is information that has evolved over the past two decades some really wonderful research, primarily in America and Japan, and really made it clear that this uric acid is far more than an innocent bystander. We've known that uric acid is elevated in obesity, in type 2 diabetes, insulin resistance, hypertension, various metabolic issues. And, you know, over the years, we sort of thought, well, isn't that interesting? It happens to be elevated. But 
I like the title of one study that came out in 2016 entitled Uric Acid and Metabolic Syndrome from Innocent Bystander to a Central Player. And it really, I think, encapsulates the notion that it's not just there. It is actually playing a prominent functional role in actually the genesis of these markers of metabolic mayhem, if you will, leading to elevated blood sugar, leading to increased lipogenesis, leading to decreased metabolism, elevating the blood pressure, increasing gluconeogenesis. So a variety of things that we would consider in our modern world to be certainly threatening to our health are actually brought about by this elevation of uric acid. And if I may just digress for a moment, I think it's important. We look upon things like elevation of blood pressure, insulin resistance, fat deposition, locking fat up so we can't use it for metabolism, et cetera. We look upon all of these things as being bad, being what we want to target for our various therapeutic program, and rightfully we should. But when we look at these issues in the context or through the lens of our ancestors, we realize that these are powerful survival mechanisms, that the notion of increasing our body fat has for more than 99% of our time on this planet been a powerful survival mechanism. The idea of gluconeogenesis to power the brain, again, powerful survival mechanism that allowed our Paleolithic and even primate ancestors to avoid starvation and avoid predation so they wouldn't be food for some other animal. So, you know, through that lens, these were powerful gene modifications over millions of years that allowed us to survive. It's just when they are confronted by a different environment, the environment of today that is triggering this increase in uric acid that we're seeing detrimental downstream effects from the elevation of blood sugar, the increased body fat, et cetera. So I just think it's an interesting contextual kind of discussion whereby we realize these things, you know, are certainly affecting us negatively today, but they've been ingrained in our physiology over millions of years as a survival mechanism. Yeah, they were protective. I love how you talk about it as a evolutionary or environmental mismatch. So we can look at uric acid as bad or good only in its context, both historically and physiologically. Is that right? That's right. And, you know, this idea of, as we look at the matrix, these environmental inputs, these environmental inputs, again, are contextual. The notion that fructose consumption is a bad thing. Well, it's bad in the context of our modern world being juxtaposed on our genetic predisposition to make higher levels of this alarm chemical, uric acid, in the presence of an elevated fructose or alcohol or purine exposure. So it's an environment that really has changed dramatically in terms of being looked at through its relationship to how it affects gene expression, for example. So if we were to look at the matrix and we're thinking about some of those antecedents and we move to the triggers, clearly the consumption of fructose, the consumption of table sugar, which is a high percentage of fructose, what are the other things that are leading to the elevation of uric acid? That's a very interesting question because, you know, by and large, people do want to focus on the major player, which is the incredible 
you know, amount of fructose, which is directly metabolized to uric acid, that we consume, you know, that amount increased a thousand percent going from 1970 to 1990. It's 50% of the table sugar that we are consuming. It, and it's the high levels of fructose exposure from fruit juice, for example. But interestingly, our bodies create fructose. We activate what is called the polyol pathway, where we actually, under certain circumstances, will manufacture fructose from glucose. And various things will drive that forward, including, as you would expect, a high level of glucose. Law of mass action would push the production of fructose and therefore the body's production of fat. Another thing is mild elevation of sodium. When does that occur? It occurs when we are dehydrated. It also occurs when we eat a lot of salt. You know, when we sit down and watch a football game and eat a bag of pretzels covered with salt, that is going to increase the stimulation of the polyol pathway, whereby we create endogenous fructose. That tells our body winter is coming, make fat, store fat, increase glucose production, and raise the blood pressure as a hedge against the damaging effects of being dehydrated. So why would the creation of fructose help us not become dehydrated? It's an interesting rhetorical question because, you know, we've got to understand, let's take a step back and look at the camel. The camel, its most outstanding feature is the hump on its back, right? Well, it's kind of interesting. Why does a camel have the hump on its back? Well, the camel lives in the desert and is able to walk for weeks without eating things and without drinking water. How does it do that? And it has to do with the hump on the camel's back. Who knew? Well, what's inside that hump? It's not water. It's fat. And when the camel and you and I metabolize fat, we produce two things, carbon dioxide that we exhale and water. So for our ancestors, the creation of body fat, in other words, the activation of fructose to uric acid, stimulates the production of body fat, was a way to protect ourselves against dehydration. So it explains then when serum sodium goes up as when we can't find water to drink, this whole pathway is activated, creating fructose from glucose, then forming increased amounts of body fat that we can then use to make water to keep us from becoming dehydrated and dying. So again, a powerful survival mechanism for our ancestors, not necessarily doing us much good today because, you know, again, eating a, a salty a meal, eating a lot of sodium stimulates this polyol pathway, increased fructose production, and the downstream product, which is uric acid. So much more important than simply gout. It is uric acid that fundamentally enhances inflammation in the body. And we could stop right there. Exactly. Because I knew that you have written about the connection between uric acid and the immune and inflammatory balance. So I was going to ask you if you could bring us into that conversation a little bit, because that impacts all of us. That really drives it home, especially in our current climate. You bet. And again, as a survival mechanism, inflammation allowed our ancestors to have a more robust response against various types of infections that would occur uh, through injury or other, other means. You know, we talk about, for example, in COVID uh, infection, that there's this overwhelming inflammatory response, the so-called cytokine storm, 
But at the same time, I think we should consider the cytokine drizzle, meaning this low level of immune activation leading to increased production of cytokines that underlies Alzheimer's, coronary artery disease, type 2 diabetes, various forms of cancer, certainly obesity, that low levels but slightly increased levels over time of inflammation can wreak havoc in the human body. So, you know, again, in the context of our ancestors, great that they had uh, inflammation when they needed it, but we have inflammation 24-7, 365 that's slowly damaging our tissues, that is upregulating the production of reactive oxygen species, further damaging fat, protein, and even our DNA. So, you know, this is one of the real sinister events that occurs with elevation of uric acid. It is this enhanced inflammatory issue and the downstream effects of that increased inflammation like increased oxidative stress. And this then goes on. Here's the protective mechanism. This oxidative stress damages mitochondria and therefore their ability to use fuel is compromised, which is a good thing when you're starving. Think about that. So again, in the context of our ancestors who are starving, you'd want to damage your mitochondria, less oxidative phosphorylation and less fuel consumption. So you might have just a little edge to survive. These days, this accumulation of oxidative mitochondrial dysfunction and the mitochondrial biogenesis of these damaged mitochondria, we know is certainly detrimental and, and is related to so many of our chronic degenerative conditions. Yeah, so well said, of course. I want to talk about dropping acid or lowering our uric acid. Drop acid is the name of your new book, if I have that right. And before we do that, I just want to talk about measurements because everybody always wants to test. So what are you looking at when you're looking at uric acid levels? Well, unlike surrogates, for example, uh, that you might want to look at if you're wanting to determine how deeply you are in ketosis. We don't use a surrogate for uric acid. We measure it directly. And it's a lab study done at a doctor's office, or I measured mine yesterday here at home with a simple finger stick. So you can buy a uric acid monitor online and go for it and see where you are. The laboratory normal value is seven milligrams per deciliter or lower. And we need to double click on that because what does that mean? It means at seven or above, you're at higher risk for gout. It doesn't really relate to all the cardiometabolic issues that uric acid is now correlated to, number one. And number two, just this notion of being within normal range has never worked for me and I'm sure it's not working for nope. you and the clients that you <laughs> deal with. We want optimal. We want yep. normal these days is who wants that? Normal means average. And, you know, here we are in a country where only one in eight people is metabolically intact, that 88% of adults has at least one marker of metabolic syndrome. So normally isn't going to cut it anymore. We're looking for optimal. And that is below 5.5 milligrams per deciliter. Again, simple home finger stick test, very, very simple, nothing to it. And I typically test in the morning. Important to realize that really extensive strenuous exercise the day before will transiently raise uric acid because you're breaking down tissue. That increases purines, producing higher levels of uric acid. And being in ketosis can also increase 
uric acid. It's a good thing to get into ketosis to be on a fast, for example. Ultimately, it'll help your uric acid, but acutely just be aware that it may temporarily raise your uric acid by a point or so. Gotcha. Okay. So many points to consider there in the context that we're looking at for an individual. So how do we drop acid? What are our major focus points on the right side of the matrix to help us address this metabolically? Well, as we look at the uh, right side of the matrix, I think many of the lifestyle areas are very, very relevant. And perhaps most importantly is the area that focuses on uh, nutrition and hydration. Hydration becomes very important, again, as it relates back to this so-called polyol pathway, so that we don't activate the enzyme aldose reductase that helps us convert our glucose into fructose. So hydration, really important. You know, the, the eight glasses of water a day that mom told us to drink might be a very good idea, especially if our foods are heavily salted. My daughter last night decided to cook dinner for us and I didn't mention to cut back on the salt. It was very salty. I didn't want to say anything. I'm very grateful she cooked dinner, <laughs> but you know, lots of water thereafter to help dilute down that sodium so that we don't trigger the polyol pathway, make more fructose and ultimately more uric acid. So hydration, very important, but getting to the uh, nutrition part, there are only three inputs into the production of uric acid. They include purines, which are the breakdown product of DNA and RNA, including things like AMP and inosine monophosphate. These then feed directly into the production of uric acid. The notion of a low purine diet has been popularized for decades as a treatment approach for gout. Gout patients at least are aware that high purine foods, meaning organ meats, small fish, aged cheeses, etc., oftentimes will trigger elevation of uric acid. Alcohol is directly metabolized consuming ATP, like fructose is. It's interesting that not all alcohols act equally, that in women at least, there is a relationship between wine consumption and actually slightly lower level of uric acid, possibly explained by some of the polyphenols contained in wine. In men, it's about neutral, but the big player in the alcohol world is beer. Why? It's an alcoholic beverage. Alcohol is directly metabolized into uric acid, but beer has lots of purines. It's made with yeast, and that yeast liberates high purine levels to the extent that in Japan, for example, they now have no purine beer, where beer is manufactured and then purines are removed such that uh, this is a alcoholic beverage now with low alcohol content, not containing purines, so not as big a threat as it relates to elevation of uric acid. But the big player remains fructose, which is quite aggressive. You know, the average sugar consumption for adults in America is 55 pounds a year. That's breathtaking. The amount of sugar we consume has gone up astronomically over multiple decades. And so that is the biggest signal to our bodies to prepare for winter, to make fat, store fat, to begin gluconeogenesis, to power the brain, to begin raising the blood pressure a little bit in hopes of keeping us from becoming dehydrated. We don't need that signaling pathway anymore, but yet all humans carry a mutation in the genes that manufacture the enzyme uricase that in other mammals 
breaks down uric acid so it can be more easily excreted as allantoin. We lost that gene pathway, therefore uricase, some 14 to 17 million years ago. The loss of the uricase enzyme explains why our uric acid levels are four to five times higher than that of many other mammals. So we've got to cater to that. We've got to cater to this predisposition that we have to elevate our uric acid because that elevated uric acid is associated with some really dramatic risks in humans. One study from arthritis and rheumatism way back in 2009 was an eight-year study followed 90,000 adults for eight years, 42,000 men, 48,000 women, followed them for eight years. And if their uric acid level was over seven, and look, the average uric acid level in America right now is around 6.6. So if the uric acid level was over seven, these 90,000 people, there was a 16% increased risk of what is called all-cause mortality, dying from any cause, a 39% increased risk of dying from cardiovascular disease like heart attack, a 35% increased risk of dying from a stroke. And interestingly, for every point elevation above seven, there was an eight to 13% increased risk for all-cause mortality every time you added a point. So eight to 13% at the level of eight. And then when you get to the level of nine, an additional eight to 13% increased risk of all-cause mortality. So the relationship of uric acid to these types of things like dementia, Alzheimer's specifically, cardiovascular disease, hypertension, dyslipidemia, overweight, isn't surprising now that we understand these various pathways, these various functions of uric acid, increasing lipogenesis, reducing metabolic rate, increasing insulin resistance, leading to elevated glucose, increasing gluconeogenesis, the production of glucose in the liver, doing so by inhibiting a very important pathway, the AMP kinase pathway. This is the pathway that we're all anxious to stimulate because it helps drive down our blood sugar, helps increase our metabolism and reduces fat deposition. And we activate that pathway with things like exercise and berberine and quercetin. And oddly enough, quercetin also acts dramatically, dramatically to reduce uric acid. It acts at the same enzymes, anthine oxidase, that gout medicines work like allopurinol, quercetin, 500 milligrams a day in one study of just two weeks long in young men with mild elevation of uric acid done in England showed an 8% reduction of their uric acid in just two weeks. When we consider quercetin in terms of its senolytic activity, its AMP kinase activation, anti-inflammatory activity, antioxidant activity, you can be sure I would be taking something like that every single day, and I do. That's amazing, Dr. Perlmutter, how you wove us through a kind of biochemistry masterclass into the what to do now. How do we actually take action and make these changes for our clients and patients? I have one more question for you. I always say I have lots of questions for you because it's such a short podcast. But <laughs> this question, you mentioned a difference in some of the activity of the foods, particularly wine, on the female and the male 
male body. Are there other differences that you've seen with uric acid based on gender, race? I'm sure there's socioeconomic differences because of potential food access, but is there any other research in terms of the impact of uric acid on different populations? Sure. I recently had a conversation with Dr. Sarah Gottfried on this exact topic. And interestingly, by and large, women, younger women, have lower uric acid in comparison to men. And, you know, early on, you might explain that away by saying, well, men eat more meat and they're breaking down more muscle, so they're liberating purines and therefore their uric acid levels will be higher. But interestingly, postmenopausal women's uh, uric acid levels go up and approach that of males. So what we've come to realize is that estrogen does seem to be quite effective in enhancing uric acid excretion at the level of the kidney. So I think that's really very, very important. Nonetheless, the goal of 5.5 milligrams per deciliter is across the board, men, women, and even children, because really the research demonstrates that that is the level below which we really dramatically reduce these metabolic consequences of more elevation of uric acid. We'll say one other thing, and that is that the level of seven being considered normal was actually derived originally from the observation that at a level above seven, crystallization of uric acid, extracellular crystallization would occur. And that's of course what we see in gout, this crystallization of the uric acid in joints. Now, interestingly, we've discovered that there are the findings in people with elevated uric acid of crystals within the blood vessels, for example, of the heart and in the prostate gland, for example, that we do see this extracellular accumulation being profoundly pro-inflammatory in multiple tissues. So again, it takes us well away from just wanting to focus on these macroscopic crystals that are so darn painful in the disease of kings and the king of diseases, which is how gout has been described. Again, as you know, when we started off, this isn't your grandfather's elevation of uric acid anymore that deals just with gout or not gout. That so many things we are exposed to are related to elevation of our uric acid and it's important from a metabolic perspective. You know, the getting back to your question, we know that the administration of testosterone, which is becoming more and more popular in men, raises uric acid. So does the use of various medications, not the least of which are the proton pump inhibiting drugs like omeprazole used by some 15 million Americans. They dramatically raise uric acid. And I've talked about one study that was published several years ago in the journal Stroke that demonstrated that higher levels of these PPI usage strongly relates to two things, risk of stroke and risk of developing Alzheimer's. Our fallback description mechanistically was the profound effect that these proton pump inhibitors have on the gut bacteria, on the microbiome, changing the microbiome leading to increased ultimately permeability and therefore inflammation. But now that we understand that these PPIs also are related to increased uric acid, there may be another very important mechanism whereby these proton pump inhibitors are related to risk for the development of Alzheimer's disease. And how intriguing it is that one recent study demonstrates that this polyol pathway converting 
glucose into fructose happens in the brain of humans. And in the brain of humans, the level of fructose in Alzheimer's patients is as much as five-fold increased. This is a sugar that is not used by neurons. It's a sugar that ultimately leads to increased inflammation and downregulates mitochondrial function. And we know that at its core, Alzheimer's is a mitochondrial disease. It's a bioenergetic issue. And, you know, these studies began appearing, you know, two to three decades ago when PET scans were done in patients who were pre-symptomatic, demonstrating these incredible changes in the brain in terms of its metabolism. So, wow, there's a lot going on with uric acid. And I want to close by saying that this becomes a very powerful new tool amongst so many other tools in our toolbox. Yeah. Yeah. So important. And I can't wait to read the new book and listen to this podcast over and over again, because there's so many good nuggets and clinical pearls in it. We will link to both of Dr. Gottfried's episodes in the show notes, along with the book. Dr. Perlmutter, thank you so much for the work you do, for being a leader in the field, and for shining a light on uric acid today. Oh my goodness. Andrea, thank you so much for having me today. It was a pleasure. The 15-Minute Matrix is hosted and produced by me, Andrea Nakayama, and the Functional Nutrition Alliance. The podcast is edited and mixed by Brian Paik of Pacific Audio, and special thanks to Natalie Merrill, Alia Hale, Pamela Geismar, and Rowan Bradley for their support in making the 15-Minute Matrix possible. You can find episodes on all kinds of topics with more incredible guests at our podcast website, 15minutematrix.com, or wherever you listen to podcasts. If you'd like to see the completed functional nutrition matrix that accompanies today's or any episode, be sure to head over to the podcast website. Again, that's 15minutematrix.com. We love when you share our episodes with your friends and colleagues, leave a review and rate the show. That helps us to grow our collective message that functional nutrition is the future of healthcare. Also, be sure to follow us on Instagram at Functional Nutrition Alliance, and you can follow me at Andrea Nakayama. And if you or someone you know is interested in becoming a functional nutrition counselor, head over to fxnutrition.com to learn more about our Full Body Systems program. Full Body Systems is our 10-month immersion course where you'll learn the systems-based approach to addressing the root causes of your clients' issues through client education, diet, and lifestyle modification. Again, you can always learn more at fxnutrition.com.